If it's your first time with us here today, know that we, we really consider an honor that you're here with us. Uh, we want to get to know you, uh, walk alongside this life with you. Um, and so uh, today we're going to be back at the beginning of John 12. And we're going to see the story where Jesus is anointed with an expensive ointment. And y'all, this is truly a powerful story, especially following last week's story um, that took us to the Valley of Pain. In today's story, it's a beautiful picture of what's on the other side of the Valley of Pain. But before we jump into the story in John 12, I do want to spend several minutes uh, and point out one, what comes before this story at the end of John 11, uh, because the background of what leads into this really helps to illuminate, illuminate and empower uh, our text for today. So here at the front, I'm going to spend some time uh, working through the setting and the context, and then we're going to step our toe into the story, and then I'm going to tell you where we're going with our main idea, and then we're going to dive back into the story. And so last week, as I said, uh, we looked at John 11, seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. It was another powerful story, putting Jesus' resurrecting power on display. Uh, but we stopped at verse 46 in chapter 11, uh, because after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, as we'll see, it caused quite the commotion, uh, which I think makes sense. I mean, just think about this. Like if, you, if someone you knew uh, had been uh, dead for four days, buried in the tomb, and then all of a sudden a man calls himself to come out of the grave, and then he actually, the, this guy actually proceeds to walk out of the grave, like still wrapped up like a dead corpse. Y'all, let's be honest here. We wouldn't know what to do, okay? Um, I'd likely be freaking out, yelling for everybody to hide your kids and hide your wife. Like thinking the world was about to end, maybe thinking we've entered into some sort of zombie apocalypse. And I think it's, I think it's fair uh, that many would be freaking out. Uh, but let's not forget, many already knew, loved, and they, already, and they trusted Jesus, which that totally changed everything. It actually, uh, it actually had the opposite effect. It, it expedited uh, and, and validated their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. So one crowd was moved to believe more in Jesus, but the other crowd, it moved them to expedite their plan to kill Jesus. And so look, look what we see. We see this at the end of chapter 11, starting in verse 47. This is what it says. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council again and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we see here that the leaders of the day, um, after Lazarus' resurrection, are like, uh, if we let Jesus continue on like this, everybody is going to make him king. And they, uh, they recognize that these leaders are going to lose their power. And then if we kept reading through chapter 11, we'd see that Cephas, the high priest of the year, he basically looks at them and essentially says, you fools, just kill the man. Which shows us, yet again, like the cross is coming. Jesus is grueling death. It's on the horizon. And what I want to point out quickly here is that uh, we, see the, we see these guys claim to be religious, but we see that their religion was a mode of power, which unfortunately we still see today all around the world. And just as a side note, and to make this very clear, healthy Christianity does not grab for abusive political power or organizational power or influencing power. Um, following Jesus is not a power grab. No, as we'll see today, healthy Christianity is actually the exact opposite of this. In fact, the story we're going to focus on in John 12 is placed in stark contrast to the religious and political setting around this story, which I think is intentional in the middle because it comes up in the middle of a political upheaval and chaos and turmoil. And then we find Jesus providing peace and calm. 
Like Jesus is worshiped in the chaos, which we'll see as we leave chapter 11 and step into chapter 12 in the book of John, uh, the, the author, he zooms out from this political uproar and then he reorients us and he zooms back into, uh, down onto the scene to show us an incredible picture of total and complete devotion to Jesus. And this story, just to point out, is in, is a, is in the other gospels, but John's story is unique. It comes from a different perspective. There's a similar story in Luke's account, but that story is a completely different interaction seen at a different time with a different woman. But here, Matthew and Mark's account of this, it's the same interaction as John's gospel, but it just comes from a different perspective. Uh, it's the same story told from a different angle with a different focus. Kind of like if I told a story from a cookout and my wife tells the same story, but we include different details. Like if I talk about the grill and the burgers and the game, but yet my wife tells the same story, but she talks about the decorations and the conversations that lead up to it. So again, these stories, they don't contradict each other. They just come from a different perspective. And what I love about John's account with this interaction is that he places it right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And he shows us that Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are there. And when John does this, it totally illuminates and empowers this story uh, in a fresh new way. So I said, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to step our toe uh, into the first two verses of this story. And then I'm going to hit the pause button for a second and tell you where we're going. And so look, let's look at the first two verses of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, when Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Again, we see the details uh, that the author points out. They're at a dinner with Jesus. And Lazarus, whom Jesus recently raised from the dead, was there he, along with his two sisters, Martha and Mary, as well as a few others that were there. But John focuses on Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And I want you to step into the mind of these three people with me for just a second. Because like we talked about Lazarus, I mean, last week, Lazarus, he's, he's here with Jesus. And Jesus just raised him from the dead. I mean, this man, Lazarus, has been, was dead for four days in a tomb, and now he's eating dinner with Jesus. And if you remember, Mary and Martha, prior to this, they were in deep pain and sadness back in chapter 11. Like they were going through a painful, grieving process. They were questioning their faith. I would go as far to say that they were mad at Jesus for not stopping his death. And then Jesus, as we saw last week, he just weeped with, with Mary. Smoke truth to Martha. And then he resurrects their brother from the dead. Like it's a complete miracle. So Mary and Martha, they both witness and experience the resurrecting power of Jesus. And this story of total surrender, humility, devotion, and sacrifice, it's a response to that. And so if last week in John 11 was stepping into the deep valley of pain, ascending down the mountain into that pain cave that we talked about last week, then this week in John 12 is what's on the other side of the pain cave. Like it's the ascension back up the next mountain. And y'all, it's incredible which leads us to our main idea. Experiencing Jesus's resurrecting power leads to extravagant devotion and sacrifice. And before we go any further into the story, I wanna stop and point out uh, that this story is the proper response to a life that has been changed by Jesus. A person that has encountered Jesus is led to a life 
of full devotion and sacrifice. Like you cannot encounter Jesus' resurrecting power and then be sidelined and not serious about our faith. Because if we truly encounter Jesus, our lives will be changed. Will it be perfect? No, not at all. Because yes, we still live in a broken world. But will we be changed and moved to worship and devotion? Yes. You know, one of the greatest challenges in our present day, especially in the American church, is lukewarm Christianity, where people get just enough of a small dose of a watered-down Jesus to where they're then immune to the real thing. And y'all listen, uh, there is a watered-down, lukewarm, southern-fried Christianity that says, go to church, do all the rituals, stand up, sit down, dress up, be a nice moral person, and don't do bad things. And oh yeah, while you're there, be sure to get your get-out-of-hell-free card. And I hate to say it, but this version of Christianity, it's a Christless, powerless Christianity. And that version of Christianity has totally lulled people to sleep. And so much so that studies have shown that churches all over the United States have been rapidly declining for over 30 years straight. And from that, we can see that our culture has been so immunized by this lukewarm Christianity that people, they've just become immune to the real thing. And then when people hear the story of the cross and Jesus' resurrection, the response is like, huh, that's interesting. It's almost like Jesus would be seen in the same vein as like the Easter bunny or maybe someone like Mother Teresa or Gandhi. And the resurrecting power of the gospel seen in our present day lives is totally lost. And I say all of this while knowing at the same time, like I truly believe we're in a unique time in history where people are more hungry than ever for the real thing. To know the truth of Jesus's resurrecting power. So today in our story, we're going to see a picture of both. Like we're going to see a picture of someone who totally missed the power of Jesus and also someone who got it. Like she tasted it. She experienced it. She grasped it. And it led her to a great sacrifice and deep devotion to Jesus. And as we look at this dinner party with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and the other guests, uh, we're going to see these two contrasting pictures. Both people are at the dinner and in Jesus' presence, but there are two different responses which will be our two points for today. Number one, humble, sacrificial devotion. And number two, self-centered religion. And just to point out, Mary's response will be that of humble, sacrificial devotion. And the self-centered religious response will be from Judas, the man who will eventually betray Jesus in the weeks to come. I mean, just the fact that Judas is at this sweet, intimate dinner, it's a bit chilling, but he's there and we're gonna have to wrestle with it. And so again, two opposing responses. One is an evidence of real faith and the other is not. And so let's pick back up in our short story. Look at verse three. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so I want you to try to imagine this scene with me. Like we know uh, that Martha from verse two, she was in her element. She was serving. We know from a different meal that Mary, she, she, uh, that, that Martha loved to serve. You know, I just imagine she was likely up all night prepping and cooking for this dinner, making all of her favorite recipes, uh, the best rep recipes. Like this was an act of worship for her. So she, so Martha was serving the meal. And as one commentator imagined it, uh, he just imagined her sister, Mary, 
kind of just slipping aside, slipping away into the other room. And I just imagine they're like everyone else at the dinner table, kind of eating and laughing and conversing, talking about their, uh, their freak out moments when Lazarus walked out of the grave, wrapped up like a mummy and how nervous and scared they were, kind of laughing about it maybe. And everyone's sitting around the table while Martha is joyfully serving and Mary in that moment, she slipped away and she goes and gets one of her most prized possessions. And she goes and gets her most expensive perfume. It was a pure nard, it says in verse three. It wasn't like those fake knockoff perfumes that you buy at the flea market. Like this was the good real stuff. Okay, and y'all, it was expensive. It says like, commentators have pointed out that the perfume cost almost a year's wages. You know, I just imagine her uh, saving up for a year to buy this or possibly she inherited it and she was waiting for the right moment. And so in an act of worship, as Jesus was sitting there with everyone else talking and listening, Mary steps back into the room, takes this expensive ointment. She walks up to Jesus while everyone is watching with this bottle of perfume in her hand and she takes it and then she slowly pours it out on Jesus's feet, like one of the dirtiest parts of his body. And she drops every last ounce onto Jesus's feet, about the size of a Coke can maybe. And, you know, typically they would honor people by putting just a small drop on their head and then they would wash their feet with water. But Mary here, she is pulling out all of the stops. She's giving everything she's got. She's giving him her best. And then she takes her hair. Just imagine this. She takes her hair and washes his feet with her hair. And the fragrance of this perfume, it filled the room. And just like we today would have seen this as a strange and bizarre thing. Those there watching in this moment, they too were likely filled with much curiosity. But Jesus, he saw past the strangeness of all of this. And he saw into the depths of her heart. He saw her deep love and thankfulness and devotion that she had for him. He saw it, he saw it as an act of worship towards him. And just to remind you again, that this is the same Mary that came to, John, came to Jesus in John 11, in her questions and in her sorrow and in her sadness, weeping out of confusion, weeping in grief, wondering, God, why? Wondering, God, why didn't you do something? Like, God, why did it have to be this way? When we saw this same Mary in John 11 cry out to Jesus and in his perfect timing, Jesus responded, And after four days in the grave, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And here later in John 12 is Mary doing the only thing she knows to do. She worshiped him and she showed, number one, humble, sacrificial devotion. She got down on her face and worshiped Jesus. And her worship to Jesus was an incredible sacrifice. Like her worship to Jesus was an act that said, I don't care how ridiculous this may look. I don't care how crazy this may appear. I don't care how illogical this seems. I'm going to give Jesus my everything. I'm going to humble myself as low as I can possibly go. Just with putting my hair on her feet, washing his feet with her hair. And in the process gave the best she had to him. And the reason she did this new city was because she experienced Jesus's divine resurrecting power. Like she knew it. She experienced it firsthand. And in chapter 11, Mary was in her house 
She was clothed in full mourning attire, likely on her hands and knees, weeping in despair, wiping away her tears, grieving the aroma of death, questioning Jesus. And he, but here, in the very next chapter, in chapter 12, Mary is no longer wiping away her tears. No, she's on the ground, clothed in her best party attire, wiping Jesus' feet, filling the room with the sweet aroma of worship. Mary was moved from grieving and questioning in the depths of her deep valley of pain in John 11 to then humble worship and joyful sacrifice that we see here in John 12. And what's the difference between John 11 and John 12? The resurrecting power of Jesus. Like Mary experienced it. She experienced his divine unstoppable love that made her wait and grieve and experience loss. And then he resurrected her soul and spirit and she was led to greater worship and sacrifice for the Lord. And so let us ask today for our own lives as a question to consider. Do you truly know Jesus's resurrecting power? Like, have you tasted it? Have you seen it? Do you truly believe it and know it? Or just maybe, what I assume is the case for many of us, Maybe you have seen it and experienced it and know about it, but yet again, maybe you've forgotten it or you've just simply lost sight of it today yet again. But I do want to remind us all today of this incredible power because as we know, this resurrecting power that was displayed to Lazarus in John 11 that brought him out of the grave, that same resurrecting power was later used to bring Jesus himself out of the grave. Because 2,000 years ago, as the story goes, God sent Jesus down to earth to live the life that God created you and me to live. But you know what? We could not and cannot live that life that God designed us to live. And why? Because of our sin. Because of our filth and immorality. It's because the world is broken. Like that lie that maybe you told last week, God didn't design you to live that way. No, he created you to be a truth teller. Those lustful thoughts and actions, maybe from this past weekend, that was not part of God's design. No, he created you for your one husband or wife. Those outbursts of anger and impatience, nope, that's not God's desire for us either. New City, there are so many things that we could list here, but the truth is our sin and disobedience keeps us separated from God. It keeps us dead in our sin. But listen, by God's grace, he sent Jesus to give us a way out. He sent Jesus to live the life that we could not live, to then go to the cross, die a criminal's death, and then overcome the grave and defeat death. Jesus rose from the dead. He was resurrected, just like Lazarus was resurrected. But the greatest part of the story is that he didn't just defeat death for himself. No, Jesus defeated death to then, through faith, give us the life that he earned. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection makes us God's children. And then get this, y'all, this never gets old. <laughs> he then puts his resurrection power inside of us, like in us. And so the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that rose Lazarus from the dead, that called Lazarus out of the tomb, that unbound him from death, when we profess faith in Jesus, that same power is placed in in us, in our hearts and souls. So Christian, get this again today. If the Spirit of God has brought you from death to life, displaying his resurrecting power through faith in Jesus, God has taken your dead dry bones 
and breathed life into you and then empowered you with his spirit. Like we were once dead as a nobody without hope and dead in the tomb of despair. And now because of the gospel, because of the power of the resurrection, you're not just alive and kicking. No, you're alive and empowered and totally transformed into royalty as God's beloved children that is daily lavished with God's unrelenting grace. Like we have divine, God-given power living inside of us that transforms us and others. And to then respond to that truth and say, eh, meh, yeah, I guess Jesus seems like a nice person. Or, huh, oh, that's a nice story. Like what? No, we have to remember that God pulled us out of the pit of despair that God looked down on us in the pit of death, totally dead in the grave because of our sin, but yet by his grace and power, he pulled us out of the grave. The right and proper response to this is a humble, worshipful devotion to Jesus. It says, God, you can have it all. God, I'll, I'll do whatever you ask. God, I'm yours. God, have your way with me. Take my best. We can say to God, as Paul said in Romans 12, take my life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We can, we can say to God, take my, take my life, take my, uh, use my career, take how I spend my time, take how I parent my children, take how I spend and use my money, my car, my house, take how I use the gifts you've given me, take my relationships, God, take it all. God, have your way with me. Take my best, God, I'm your servant. New City, hear me on this. The posture of someone who knows God's resurrecting power looks like humiliation to the world. But don't be fooled into believing those lies because it's a posture of humility and worship to Christ. Like radical generosity looks like humiliation to the world. It seems silly and crazy, but to Christ, it's a posture of humility and sacrifice and worship to the Lord. Waiting patiently in purity for a spouse in marriage seems like laughable humiliation to the world, but to Christ is the posture of humility and worship. Leaving your family and friends, foregoing your career to live on mission among an unreached people group across the world, it looks like strange and an odd form of humiliation to the world, but to Christ, it's a sweet aroma of sacrificial worship. Y'all, the more we look to the power of the resurrection and the more we see it and experience it and know it and believe it, the more we're willing to do what seems like humiliation to the world in order to offer to God our humble sacrifice of worship to him. And so very simply put, the application, the simple application here is to first regularly and repeatedly and daily look to the cross and the spirit's resurrecting power in your life. Like we don't first look to sacrifice. No, we always, 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 always first go to the source of divine power. Like you were once dead, but now you are empowered. And God with new life, you've been given new life every day. We have new life every day. Every day we're restored and healed and given a new fresh start because of Jesus. But then as we're there being refreshed and renewed, the, the natural outworking of that, as we saw in our story, is radical, humble, and joyful sacrifice. We're going to come back to this, for but for now, let's keep moving to finish our story, to see our second point with uh, good old Judas. Look, starting in verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what he put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So again, uh, Judas, who would soon betray Jesus, was at this intimate celebratory dinner. Uh, And maybe this is a bit extreme, maybe not. But it feels like uh, when there's a rat in the house. (laughs) Kind of like when I went over to my wife's Kelly's house when when she was in college, we weren't married yet, uh, to get out from underneath a girl's bed, a dead rat uh, about the size of a small cat. Like it had been feasting on the trash for months and it was dead underneath the the bed and I got the the privilege of going to get it. Let's just say the rat poison worked. So Judas in this story feels like the rat in the house, except he's not dead, he's at the dinner party. And what I find so chilling about this is that one of Jesus's closest so-called friends would betray him and Jesus knew it and he still let him in. Jesus could have kept him away, but he didn't because Jesus knew the plan for the cross. And Judas, his betrayer, as we just read, questions the entire situation. He said a bunch of religious jargon to make him sound good and holy. Like thinking, uh, we could have sold that perfume and given it to the poor, uh, but it was all a disguise because he was a thief. And Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. And Jesus stood up for Mary when Judas was displaying in stark contrast to her, number two, self-centered religion. I don't want to spend a lot of time in here, just like I didn't want to spend a lot of time uh, with that mammoth of a rat in Kelly's house in college. Uh, But I do want to point out, because it's a major part of the story, because it's in contrast to Mary's wholehearted, sacrificial, humble worship and devotion to Jesus that we saw in verse three. Uh, We just saw Judas's response. And as we just saw, his response showed intentions to elevate himself. And what is so crazy about this entire encounter is that as to what, what Judas said, it sounded really good. Like it seemed right. It seemed like the noble thing to do, like to care for the poor, to sell the expensive ointment and give it to the poor. But the problem wasn't in what he said. The problem was in the heart posture behind what he said. Because Judas didn't want it to do, he didn't want to do it for the poor. No, he wanted to actually steal the money and keep it for himself. And why this is so chilling is because this is what self-centered religion does. It uses religion to elevate ourselves. Like, for example, it says, I go to church so that I look like a good moral person. It says, I serve and lead so that others will notice me. It says, I give the appearance of being good and moral, but behind closed doors, I'm a completely different person. Like it's all empty religion. This is is all void of transforming grace. And I want you to notice this. Uh, Judas, like he knew Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. He could walk the walk and he could talk the talk, but his heart wasn't for Jesus. Judas's heart was for himself. Judas followed Jesus for his own benefit, not because he actually loved him. And the outworking of that was that he didn't want to sacrifice. Like he knew the religious jargon. He knew, he knew everything about Jesus, but not enough to sacrifice. Judas was more interested in himself. And so let me just ask a bit of a direct and hard question. Does our life look more like Judas or Mary? Because they both knew Jesus. 
They both knew his teachings. They both knew all that he did. But Mary was led to worshipful sacrifice. And Judas, on the other hand, sought his own gain and was unwilling to sacrifice. Like, that's a little sticky. <laughs> like, that doesn't sit real well. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all, at times, can have Judas tendencies, including myself. Like, we know what's right, but our hearts don't want to sacrifice and humble ourselves before the Lord, and so we don't. And I want to be really careful here, because it could be really easy for me right now to shame us all into more sacrifice. But I don't want to do that because that's totally missing the point. Because our Judas tendencies that we all have are just an outward response to what our hearts already believe in those moments. And all these things happen to all of us in different ways. And so the application is not to sacrifice more because we feel guilt and shame. Like, I guess if I want to be a good Christian, I need to sacrifice more. No, that's totally missing the point here. Again, what I want to call us to and urge us to is to regularly and wholeheartedly look to Jesus and to go to him and sit with him in his word daily and as often as possible and seek to experience and know more deeply his resurrecting power. Like I want to call us to bask in his relentless, unhindered, radical love and grace that he has already shown to us at the cross. And when we do that, the response is in humble and joyful, extravagant sacrifice like we saw from Mary in our story. I mean, throughout the Bible, whenever someone encounters God, it moves them to action. And so I want us to think intentionally, just like Mary did. What is our personal response? Like how do we and will we respond and be moved towards an extravagant sacrifice to the Lord after we first encountered the Lord? Again, it's not a duty, it's a worshipful response to what God has already done for us in Christ. And what I know is that we can't copy Mary's sacrifice. Like we can't take a $30,000 bottle of perfume and dump it on Jesus's feet and use our hair to wipe his feet. Like that would be silly and maybe not possible for some, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, that Mary took the time to think about her sacrifice to the Lord after she experienced Jesus' resurrecting power. And her sacrifice, it was significant, it was costly, but it was her best response to what Jesus did for her, and it was worship. And I'm not saying, these things I'm about to say, I'm not saying you do these things. But I do want you to think with me about some of the things I've seen others do, very real-life, tangible things others have done that I've seen as a worshipful response to Jesus. Like I know people and have good friends that use the money for their honeymoon that they saved and instead went on a much cheaper honeymoon to give the, the honeymoon money away as radical generosity into the world. That seems crazy, like maybe a bit ridiculous. Probably for many inciting a similar response uh, that Judas had thinking like, why would you do that? But for them, it was a joyful worship. You know, when I was fundraising for our church, we received all sorts of gifts and donations. And one of the more humbling things, I've, it was one of the more humbling things I've ever done. Like I was handed several very large gifts, like $50,000 gifts, $40,000 gifts that were great sacrifices for those people. But I also was handed a, don a donation from a homeless lady to help us start our church. And at first I didn't want to take it, but then I quickly realized this was joyful worship for her. 
You know, after the service, this lady handed me, she handed me two orange juice jugs full of coins, about $50 worth of coins that she'd been saving for months, waiting for the Lord to show her how to give it. And when I shared what we were doing, she said she knew in that moment she wanted her funds to go to our church to build God's kingdom. I mean, how humbling. I mean, she often went without several meals. Like she didn't have a home. She had many, many, many unmet needs that she just sacrificed and gave to us. And to the world, her sacrifice may have seemed silly, but to her, it was a joyful, sacrificial, worshipful sacrifice. She sacrificed her resources as a homeless lady to advance God's kingdom here in the Tampa Bay area, and it was worship. I mean, just thinking back to the story, When Judas had to choose between more money or Jesus, Judas chose more money. Judas Judas chose money for himself, but Mary chose radical, humble sacrifice. And y'all, this is so important for us to grasp here because the healthy Christian life, it is marked by great sacrifice, which absolutely includes our money and our resources and our possessions. And please hear me on this. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to twist your arm to give more money to our church. I'm saying this because being a cheerful and sacrificial giver is part of being a healthy and mature Christian. Again, this is not a church budget thing. This is me wanting to care for your heart thing because our hearts are so tied to our money. I I really mean this. Like if you don't want to give to New City, give generously and sacrificially and extravagantly somewhere else to advance the gospel in God's kingdom around the world. In line with this, what I also know is that joyful sacrificial offerings are not only limited to our financial resources. For some, selling everything and moving halfway around the world is an incredible sacrificial joyful offering. For others, staying in one place and digging deep roots for long-term sustainable gospel movement is a sacrifice and it's a joyful offering. For some, staying in a career or a job you don't love is a sacrifice. For others, giving up a job you do love is a sacrifice. At different times and in different seasons, I've had to do both. I've done both. In some seasons, for me, it meant sacrificing my free time in college to reach high school kids with the gospel, to move, or to move around the world to be missionaries, or to move and help plant a church. In others, it meant stepping back from ministry to better love and serve my family. And in our current season, for me right now, this, the more I look to the cross and God's resurrecting power, the more God calls me to love my wife and kids, and in turn, saying no to a lot of ministry things so that I can help coach my son's baseball team and eat dinner and tuck my kids in at bed. as joyful worship. And I don't know what a sacrificial offering looks like for you, but I know when we look to the cross, we're moved to make sacrifices. This is just what God does in us. This is what the Spirit does to us. And so let's ask, what does it look like for you? And New City, I want you to stop and think with me here for a second, because right now, in this moment, we're in a unique time in the life of our church. Because at about this time, three years ago, 35 adults and 15 kids sold houses, left jobs, took pay cuts, left friends and families, sold businesses, and moved here to Tampa to help start this church two years ago as a sacrificial offering to the Lord, with the hopes and prayers that we'd be a blessing to this community. And if, uh, if you're sitting here today and you're, you've been blessed by this church, know that it came on the backs of incredible sacrifice. That to the world, it seemed crazy. But to them, it was a joyful act of worship. And you know what? Several of them are still here. But many of them, over half of them are not. And I want you to get, to, this is what I want you to get today is that they have now passed the baton to you. 
Like those 35 adults and their kids that sacrificed their life, their friends, their family, their careers, they gave up everything to help build God's kingdom here and to, they have then handed you the baton and to keep running with you. And so I want you to imagine with me for a minute that if those 35 adults sacrificed their life to be a blessing to you, what can our now 100 plus adults that call New City home, what can we now sacrifice to be a, a blessing for the next generation of believers that call New City home? Like what marriages, what more marriages can be restored because of your sacrificial offering? I mean, just think with me. Like what, what orphans can be adopted in the Tampa Bay area in the years to come? What college students and high school students can find hope and purpose for their life and then sent back out on mission? What families can find peace and gospel hope in their struggle in the future because of your current sacrificial offering? Like what people groups can be taken off the map by people sacrificing and going to the ends of the earth? I mean, who can be built up and discipled into full maturity for generations to come because of your sacrificial offering of digging deep roots here in the Tampa Bay area? Like what if a sacrificial offering to the Lord for many of the women in our church is just simply hosting an if gathering event in a few weeks? in your home and inviting other women in our church or neighbors or friends that you've been trying to engage with the gospel. I mean, just dream with me, like what more can God do? And I want you, I want to be very honest with you for a second. You know, our Sunday morning gathering, it's literally doubled in the past seven to eight months. Like God is moving in powerful ways among us. Lives are changing. People are being built up and encouraged, uh, growing into maturity, finding healing, being saved and finding purpose. And you know what? I'm just going to shoot it straight. Like if people don't step up and lead and serve and disciple and host and create community and pour out and give in a sacrificial way, like if we don't catch up and respond to how God is moving, we won't be able to keep up. And, and y'all, this isn't an abnormal thing. Like this, this totally makes sense. Because when I look at my Bible, whenever God moves in power, it's almost always met with great sacrifices from God's people. And when God's people stop sacrificing in joyful worship, God stops moving through those people. Because when God's people stop sacrificing, it shows their faith and love as, as it has grown dim and dull. But New City, we can praise God because God is moving in power among us. But my question is, how will we respond? What will be our extravagant, joyful offering to the Lord? Maybe it's financial, maybe it's how you position your life, maybe it's how you spend your time, whatever it is, will we bring it to the feet of Jesus as an act of joyful, sacrificial worship? Again, just dream with me. Like what can God do when over a hundred people are zealously and wholeheartedly offering up their life as an extravagant sacrifice to the Lord? And believe me, y'all, you can ask my wife. This is, this is absolutely not for me or for the fame of New City because y'all, my dream is to go out in the middle of nowhere, live on a farm with chickens and goats, do farm work, play on tractors and read books half the day and never be out front like leading. Like I don't like to be out front. I don't like stages. I don't like attention. But for whatever reason, God is doing what he is doing through our church. And he's placed me as well as, well as other pastors and leaders to lead this church. And what I know to be true of myself is that one of my many sacrificial offerings to the Lord week after week is just to get over myself and be out in front charging us all to continue to make sacrifices to the Lord. Like, this is not for our sake. This is not to benefit ourselves. And this is just an act of worship to the Lord.
Like I'm calling you and will continue to call us to continually lay down our life over and over and over again until the Lord calls us home. Why? Because God's resurrecting power is real. And it deserves nothing short of total surrender and sacrifice. And so I want to end with this. I know that for some of you here today, you're right there with me. You're like Mary in chapter 12, ready to make an extravagant sacrifice to the Lord. Praise God. But for others of you, maybe you're still like Mary in chapter 11 like grieving and confused, like, and you haven't, or you struggle to taste and see the power of the resurrection, or you're just struggling to see it right now. And I want you to, I want to say to you today that if you would categorize your life like Mary in chapter 11, I want you to hear me from me today that it's okay. It's okay for your sacrificial offering to the Lord to be to just go and sit at his feet and weep and to worship in your weeping. Because what I know to be true for us still today is that the resurrection power of Jesus turns our weeping into worship. He turns our mourning into dancing. He takes us from a pit of despair and he slowly in time, he strengthens our faith and he leads us to joyful, sacrificial worship. And it's not out of duty, but it's done from delight. And at the end of the day, whether you're like Mary in chapter 11 or Mary in chapter 12, hear me today. The sacrifice is not the point. The point is to worship Jesus. And in time, as we sit with Jesus, a joyful, sacrificial response will come because that's what God does with his resurrecting power. And so for each of us here today, no matter where you are, the call is to first just sit with Jesus and Jesus, he will take care of the rest. He'll make that extravagant sacrificial worship clear. Because like we've seen today, when we experience his resurrecting power, it moves us to extravagant devotion and sacrifice. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. God, you move us from weeping to worship. God, you move through us. You come and meet us right where we are. And you slowly, in time, you resurrect our hearts and our souls to then be led out of worship to respond in extravagant faith and devotion. God, this is, this is not for the fame of ourselves. God, we want to make everything about you, Lord. God, what can you do when you take people that are completely laying down their life for the Lord? God, would you do something, would you move in a way uh, that just allows us to be continually in all of you? We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.